chapter 7. And we're going to pick up in about the middle of the chapter. Someone willing to read for us verses 10 through 17. 10 through 17, please. Amos chapter 7. Bob, thank you. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos said, says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. And Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from, the following, from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife will become a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. All right, what do we notice in these verses? What's that? Uh, which verse do you see the visions in? I'm sorry. Oh, right. No, I just mean, right, we did look at that last week, but from verse 10 through 17, what do we see? From Starting in verse 10 with this thing with Amaziah. Yeah, so he's a, he's a, okay, yeah, he's trying to get uh, Amos to stop prophesying, okay, what else? What else do we notice? Why did he try to get Amos to stop prophesying? Do they like his words? No. no. So, there's a parallel here with what we see in, for example, 2 Timothy. It says, in the last days there will come difficult times and people will heap up for themselves teachers. Having itching ears, they want people who are going to tell them what they want to hear. They're going to reject the words of those who tell them what they don't want to hear. Now, there are people who just are difficult and say the opposite of whatever they think people want to hear just to be annoying and frustrating. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is someone who's bringing a warning from God 
and then people don't want to hear a warning from God, so they tell him, hey, be quiet, go away, stop that, and then they go find somebody that says, hey, life is wonderful, everything will be great, nothing bad will happen to you. Because that is what Amaziah is trying to do with Amos here, right? He tells him to go to Judah, right? Quit prophesying in Israel, go prophesy in Judah. And he tries to do this, uh, don't prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. We don't need your words of discouragement and, and uh, fear disturbing the repose of the king at his special place of rest this place of worship. Everybody knows this is a wonderful place and a great place. Everybody knows that nothing bad will happen to it, and you're coming in here and stirring up all this trouble. That's what Amaziah is saying to Amos. What's fascinating about Amos's response? Oh? Reminds me of Peter saying, who should I obey, men or God? Okay. He gives his story. Okay. What does he start out by saying he's not? Right. He doesn't He doesn't seem to consider himself a prophet like Isaiah for example or someone like that. Despite the fact that he's prophesying in a similar time frame with equal authority from God, he just considers himself, "Hey, you know what? <coughs> I have sheep, I grow figs." So, um, I didn't pick this lifestyle. This is not my message. This is God's message. He sort of dragged me away from my flocks and away from tending the vines or the trees. That's what he says, verse 15, The Lord took me, and the Lord said, Go prophesy. And he says, Now hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord... You are saying, don't prophesy. Here's God's word. And it's a pretty severe word toward Amaziah, right? Here at the end of Amos 7. What's the severe word? Braden? Yeah. Your wife will be defiled. Your children will die by the sword. Your land's going to be parceled up by other people, and you're going to die on unclean soil. Which means he's going to be carried away into captivity and he's going to die there. So when he says, moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile, uh, this reminds me of the story of, um, I think it's during the time of Elisha. Remember, there's the city that's being besieged, and the one guy says, the famine's not going to break, nobody's going to deliver you, etc., etc. And no, but the word of the Lord is, grain is going to be abundant tomorrow, but you're not going to see it. The guy goes to go get the grain the next day, and he gets trampled by all the people rushing to get the grain because he didn't believe God's word. There's this uh, sort of feel of like First and Second Kings here at this point in Amos. Here's the word of the Lord. Here's what people would like to be true. The word of the Lord is hard and difficult, but it is certain and it's what's going to happen. And you can't silence it however much you might not like it. Any other thoughts on these verses 10 through 17?
Robert. Okay. Are you saying maybe his the sort of humility that he expresses at the end of the chapter is perhaps a clue to why God hears his plea? Mm-hmm. Possibly. I would say, if I were to try to pick between all of those, I would say that it would be some combination of his attitude of humility alongside his confidence that God's word will stand. And so because he has faith in, he's trusting in God, because he's expressing humility, then God hears his prayer. Um, I think the parallel we would see in the Gospels would be, um, you know, the disciples are trying to cast out the demon, and Jesus says this does not come out except by prayer and fasting. They're not having an attitude of humility. They're just like, we can do this. Why isn't it working, right? Um, And, you know, later... There's various places where the disciples or Israel as a whole is contrasted for lack of faith with someone like the centurion who's just like, God, you don't have to go see my servant. You can speak the word and it'll happen because you're God and you can do whatever you want. And, and Jesus commends him for his faith. And so I think it's the intersection of faith, confidence in God's word alongside personal humility. But 
That would that's just a guess. That's so, helpful. Yeah. That would make the contrast kind of deeper than uh, being that Amaziah priest considers himself sort of this person that can send messages to the king and warn him of this supposed threat and sort of speak for the royal house and telling um, Amos to leave the ground. Um, and Amos has just spoken to the king of kings and had his plea answered. Right. Yeah, Amaziah is very proud and self-confident. Norma? I don't think about the counterculture. People are getting tired of having the truth. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, the parallel and the difference would be when it comes to what we see in this passage, hmm, Here's someone who's clearly speaking God's word. Sometimes, what we think of in our society as cancel culture is directed toward, let's say someone said something dumb 20 years ago. And so it is not always, I spoke what is right, now they're trying to silence me. Sometimes it's, I did something foolish, and rather than extending forgiveness, they're going to try to hold it against me forever because our society has no concept of biblical forgiveness. And so um, there are some parallels, but there are some differences, I think. And so, but yeah, I mean, the, the reality is we do see the pattern in Scripture that in times when people are by and large going their own way, serving false gods, pleasing themselves, if someone stands up and says, no, God wants this, you're going to have a negative reaction because people don't want to be told not to do what they feel like doing. So I think that is a pretty, pretty consistent thing we see in the Scriptures. Other thoughts on these verses? Robert. I'm trying to find it now. I think it was Jeremiah who had a run with Okay. Sure. There's an interesting parallel in Paul's run-in with Bar-Jesus on Cyprus, I think. And uh, Paul's trying to preach the gospel. And this guy, Bar-Jesus, is like, oh, no, you know, you don't need to listen to him. He's just saying all these strange new ideas. And Paul basically is like, son of Satan, be silent and be blind for a time. And you're like, where did that come from? But there's that same sort of attitude of those who are trying to interfere with God's word, contradict God's word. God's messengers have authority over and against them. And I think it catches us off guard because we live in a society that values tolerance and being well-spoken over directness and, and holding on to the truth. And it's possible to be unnecessarily belligerent, but it's also possible to be exceedingly passive. 
and we've got to find the biblical balance on all those things. So, so let's come into chapter 8. Um, let's read verses 1 through 3. Who wants to read 1 to 3? Okay, Grace, thank you. There's this fascinating little exchange. What's the significance of the basket of summer fruit? The answer is in verse 2, God tells us, so we don't have to guess. What does he say it means? Yeah, the end has come. I'm not going to spare them any longer. Why a basket of summer fruit is the question we might like answered that's not really answered. Possibly association with sowing and reaping, harvest, that sort of thing. Um, but the bottom line is, picture of summer fruit, what does this mean? The end has come for the Israelites. No more singing, many corpses, casting them forth, and then silence. So a very bleak picture of God's coming judgment. And we say, why such a bleak picture of God's judgment? Well, then we come to what is described in the middle of chapter 8. So someone read for us 4 through 10, please. Amos 8, 4 through 10. Who wants to read that? Sarah? <clears throat> Yes, please. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark and broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. Go ahead and read down through 14, I think. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And that day the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. Okay. So what's the accusation in verse 4? Green? 
taking advantage of the poor, okay? Verse 5 and 6 describe specifically how they're taking advantage of the poor. What are some of the attitudes or actions that we see in, in 5 and 6? The what? Oh, dis okay, yeah. To cheat with dishonest scales, make the bushel smaller. Oh, you look at this. You brought a no. That's not really a bushel. That's like two thirds of a bushel. We're going to give you less money for it. Okay. Uh, what when it says when will the new moon be over? When will the Sabbath be over? They're they're trying to rush the worship of God so they can get back to cheating people, right? And making more money. When it says buying the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the refuse of the wheat, what's sort of the picture of what's going on there? What's that? Right. So the helpless are those who are not in a position really to bargain. They're kind of at the mercy of the people who are supposed to be giving them a fair value for their, their produce. Um, they're basically devaluing them and saying, you know, if we, if we cheat them a little bit more, you know, we get an extra pair of sandals out of it maybe, and we're, all we're, we're valuing them very little and what they've brought, um, something along those lines. And then selling the refuse of the wheat, you have good wheat and then you have sort of what's left at the bottom of the bin, right? They're going to take and give them little value for what they've got. And then those who are poor who need to buy grain, they're going to give them the worst of what's left over and sell it to them for a high price so they can make lots of profit on it. Why would God have a problem with that? God loves his people. Okay, what else? Okay, justice. Were there any provisions in Old Testament Israel made on behalf of the poor? Yeah? So they were supposed to leave behind extra grain in the field, like not pick up every last bit of it. Uh, if there were people who could not provide for themselves, there was supposed to be an attitude of compassion from one Israelite to another. Where do you think this attitude of cheating your own people and taking advantage of the poor came from, or at least was influenced by? Okay, what, what, where, where are they seeing that modeled? Robert? What, what, Bob? So the pagans around them, Robert? Okay, yeah. Their own leaders. Okay. Um, now, is it an excuse for them to say, oh, well, you know, we've been hanging out with the pagans and so we've been started acting like them? No. Um, but to the extent that they were so focused on what the nations around them were doing and all those sorts of things, um, just a quick point of application. I think it is easy in the context of churches to 
It's easy for churches to be disorganized, and this is something that we have to work against because especially in a smaller organization where it's dependent on one or two people to do a lot of things, it's easy for things to fall through the cracks. So there's that reality that things need to be organized. However, I think it's easy for churches to adopt, well, here's what businesses are doing, and here's what their values are, and all those sorts of things. Now we've got to take all these things, and we've got to bring them over in the church, instead of starting and saying, what are God's values for what the church is supposed to be and do? And so my point is just to say, to the extent that the Israelites were influenced by the pagan nations around them, we can be influenced by secular perspectives on the way things are supposed to operate and get so caught up in, I don't know, the machinery of business, having meetings, things looking a particular way uh, as far as the structure of things and all of that, that we lose sight of the point of why we're in the church together, which is to minister in a personal way to each other using God's Word. It's not to have a corporate structure and it's not to meet specific performance targets to the extent that we're doing things that we ultimately don't have control over the results of. Um, and so my point is not to say it's a one-for-one one with what's going on here, but to the extent that secular business practices prioritize profit as being the number one goal, not every company does this, but a lot of companies do. Like I had a friend who was working for Ford and he retired, I don't know, five or six years ago, and he said that their attitude had really shifted from let's make a, a product that is reliable and solid to let's make a product where we can eke as much profit out of it as possible. And there were several in the company that said, look, here's the downstream effect of this. You're going to start having a lot of quality control issues. And they did, but they hadn't listened at that point. And so my point's not to pick on Ford versus some other company, because there's a lot of companies that do this. My point is just to use that as an illustration to say, when we become focused on profit and greed and all of those sorts of things as the driving focus for why we're doing whatever business it is that we're engaged in, and if that's the attitude that we're exposed to on a daily basis in our place of work, if we then import those attitudes into the church and say, let's be driven by greed, let's be driven by um, corporate values, let's be driven by this, that, and the other thing, we have to take a step back and say, is this supposed to be the same as this? Why are we doing this this way? Is this being done in a way that pleases God? Um, and you can, you can work at a place that doesn't have values that entirely line up with the Bible and still honor God in it. That's, my point is not to say you have to quit your job if there's any deviation from a biblical pattern. My point is to say to the extent that the Israelites were influenced by their own selfish hearts, reinforced by their constant contact with pagans, we can similarly be driven by our own selfish hearts, reinforced by constant contact with secular theories of how things are supposed to run and operate and lose sight of what it is that God calls us to do in what we're doing here. And so when we start to um, 
on the, on the subject of the poor as well. It is easy to make this a political issue, right? Here's a party that says they care about the poor and needy. Here's another party that says, let's keep the poor over there because we don't really, they're causing problems for us. Um, we should step back and say, regardless of political parties and theories about economics and all of those sorts of things, if God had a concern about the poor in the Old Testament, we should not be hard-hearted to the degree that we have zero concern about people who are experiencing poverty in the world around us here. Now, is poverty a completely solvable problem? No. Is poverty a problem that's always helped by money? No. Is poverty something that um, the solution is to sort of equalize everything so you know instead of this person having a hundred dollars and this person having none everyone ends up with 50 bucks that's not the solution either because mm, equality isn't always fairness but the attitude that says I am going to exploit whatever I can find to maximize things for me no matter what no matter what it costs in terms of ethics, no matter what it costs in terms of relationships with people, no matter what it costs in terms of reputation. You know, I'm a believer, but people say, oh, you know, here's this person has this reputation for seeking profit above all else. My point is to say that the same sort of attitudes that God condemned Israel for can creep into our hearts as well, and we need to watch out for that. Um, what's God's response to these attitudes of grasping and these attitudes of taking advantage of the poor in verses 7 through 10? Robert? Okay. God's going to punish them. We've got these parties going on in verse 10. It's going to bring sackcloth and baldness and mourning and bitterness. Notice that there's verse 11 through 14 is fascinating. He's going to send a famine for what? Sorry, what? Hmm? Right, but a famine for what? For the word of the Lord. We tend to think that the worst kind of famine is no food and no water. But he's saying, I'm going to send a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. People are going to stagger from sea to sea and north to east, back and forth to find the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. As terrifying as the words of the prophets were, the 400 years of silence from God that followed should have been more terrifying for his people. Because God sends them prophet after prophet after prophet during the reigns of the kings, uh, during the time of the major prophets and the minor prophets, and then he sends them away into exile 
and there's brief discussion of the return from exile, and then there's nothing. There's, I mean, I know there's the, there, there's the apocryphal books, but those aren't scripture. Um, there's nothing in terms of official word from the Lord from about four or 500 B.C. until the coming of Christ. Silence. No word of the Lord. Into that gap, the rabbis insert all sorts of theories. Into that gap, the people come up with all kinds of speculations. But in that gap, there is silence from God. Sometimes we think that when it comes to something like conscience, if it stops bothering us, everything must be okay. But if it's shouting warnings and alarms and all those sorts of things, and then suddenly it stops, we're like, oh, this is a good thing. Everything I'm doing must be okay. When you stop getting warnings, when prophets stop saying, hey, don't go that way, when God lets you go your own way without opposition, that's a terrifying situation to be in. And Amos is speaking here of a time when God's word will be sought and no one will find it. Who do we think is going to survive in uh, a situation of difficulty? Look at verse 13. Those who are beautiful and those who are strong, right? They'll probably be better off than people who are old or people who are less desirable in some way, people who are weak. What does it say is going to happen to them? They're faint from thirst. Are they exempted from this judgment? Are they delivered by reason of characteristics that they thought would help them? No. What's this thing about swearing by the guilt of Samaria? Robert? Yeah, I think it's basically those who are swearing by the false altar and system of worship in Samaria. So they've trusted in this God and it's in an unfaithful God that they've worshipped and it brings them to destruction. Um, let's see here. How about we read chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. You can read 9, 1 through 10. Jonathan, thank you. Command the sword that it slay them, and I will set my 
one who built his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Peter? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. But behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations. As grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. All right. Verses 1 through 4 remind me of sort of a negative version of uh, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, where can you go from my presence? Heaven, Sheol, etc. Whereas here it's not, you cannot escape my presence, I am with you everywhere in a positive sense. Here it's, no matter where you go, your judgment will follow after you. Uh, the thing about concealing yourself on the floor of the sea, I'll command the serpent and it will bite them. I don't know if this is the picture that he has in mind, but there are um, some pretty uh, hideous eels that I was seeing a video about earlier this week. And um, basically something that you wouldn't want to encounter randomly. But if you go hide on the sea and then some sort of eel or sea serpent bites you, you think you're safe, but you're not. Um, you go into captivity, and even there, it says the sword will slay them. So there's all of these, uh, like they cannot escape God's judgment by running away, is the, is, the, is the gist of it. And verse 5 reminds me, there's a passage in Psalms where it says, the Lord will descend upon the mountains and touch them so that they will smoke and reveal His power and, and all those sorts of ideas. Um, just this brief glimpse of God being the creator and the majestic one and the one who's powerful over all these things, again, how could they think that they would escape that God with such power? And then again, a description of God's judgment in verses 8 through 10. Particularly, verse 10 is sobering. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Kind of going back to that conversation with Amaziah in chapter uh, 7. Uh, someone read for us verses 11 to 15 as we wrap up this morning and finish up the book. Robert, thank you. In that day, I will raise up the fallen place of David, the wall of the spaces. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. But they will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, and the mountains will sip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine, and make gardens and eat their fruits. I will also plant them under Zan, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So there's... Despite all the promise of judgment, there is hope for restoration. And um, 
He's going to raise up the fallen booth of David. You know, there's this picture sort of like, uh, this is not the best illustration, but you ever drive by somebody's property, usually out in the country, and you see an RV that's sort of all fallen in, or an old house where the roof's fallen in and the plants have all grown up through it? That's sort of the picture of what Israel looks like. And God's saying, I'm going to restore it to being a habitable place, and I'm going to bless it again. And then they're going to possess the land that I meant for them. And this uh, picture of plenty, that um, there's, the, the, there's sort of this competition almost between the people who are plowing the field and the one who's reaping, the one who's crushing the grapes and the one who's sowing the seed, and, and all of this produce and abundance and all these sorts of things. The people will rebuild ruined cities, live in them, plant vineyards, drink wine, make gardens, and they will not again be rooted out from the land that I've given them. And so though Israel is going to go through captivity to purify them from their idolatry, God is not forgetting his people, which should give us hope. Any other closing thoughts here on Amos? Robert. So we see echoes of this even in other mythologies, the restoration of things and the hope that not everything will always be in ruin and devastation. Okay, anything else? Norma? Is God going to reveal the temple or will he reveal the tabernacle of David? Well, I think when he says fallen booth of David, I don't think he means the tabernacle or temple per se. I think he's using that as a picture for David and his people. Hmm... I guess what I'm trying to say is in the end times we don't see God having a tabernacle or a temple because he's dwelling directly with his people. So I think this is looking forward to restoring the dwelling of God's people and God dwells with them and they all dwell together. Does that make sense? So, anything else? All right, let's close there for today. Father, we thank you for these warnings and encouragements and things to make us think from the book of Amos. Pray that we would take them to heart and consider who you are and who we are and uh, what our response ought to be to our own sin and to your greatness and to warnings of judgment and to the extent that we have idolatry that we are harboring in our hearts.
or oppression of the poor or all of these things that you condemn. I pray that you would help us not be blind to those things, but rather repent of them and maintain a right relationship with you so that your mm, judgment and purification doesn't have to fall on us like it did on Israel to draw our hearts back to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah.